Hi, and welcome to the Guiding Compass podcast. My name is Sandra Krishner, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I started this podcast to help bring awareness and education around different topics related to mental health and wellness. Today, I have Jay Wick. He's a licensed marriage and family therapist on the show, and he practices in Encinitas, California. We are going to be talking a little bit about his work with substance abuse, his experience in his own recovery, and touching on a lot of topics on ranging from things going on in the industry of addiction and kind of um, what to look out for in the different programs, as well as how to build a life worth staying sober for. So Jay, thank you for joining us today on The Guiding Compass. Yeah, thank you for having me. Of course. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what made you get into the work that you do and passionate about working with substance abuse? Yeah, um, I think it all pretty much, throughout most of my 20s, I struggled myself um, with substance abuse, pretty severe alcohol problem and um, pretty much every other substance, but alcohol was the main one. So I kind of wandered lost for a long time. I had gone to school for business and um, was just kind of going through the motions with classes. And so I dropped out of school and ended up um, just kind of working as a bartender for a long time, trying to figure things out. And then eventually led me to that, like I pretty much almost lost my life. And I was in the um, emergency room and went straight to detox. And then I went on to a residential treatment center. And it was kind of in there that I started seeing like through the group process, I started seeing people get some light behind their eyes again. And it was really cool to be a part of that, even just being a client at the time. And Mm -hmm. and I really connected with it and liked it. So I I thought I had already applied to go back to school before I went to treatment. And I figured, you know, I might, it might set me back a little bit of time, but I really wanted to switch my major. Um, And so I went back to school and switched my major to counseling. And then I went straight from I did about two and a half years of that and then I went straight into a master's program and um, ended up kind of the rest was history so I've been licensed for over a year now worked in some different treatment centers and and now I have my own private practice that's awesome and I'm so excited to have this conversation with you because I also specialize in working with addiction and have worked in the treatment setting and I think there's a lot of stigma and a lot of unknown about what treatment looks like and kind of um, what addiction is to a lot of people. It's something that is really untouched on and a lot of people are afraid to talk about it. But most most of us know someone who has an addiction or we ourselves struggle with certain types of addictions. So it's such an important topic to kind of destigmatize and really normalize um, and educate people about and how to seek the right help. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. It's, I don't know anybody who hasn't been affected in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was your experience like working in the treatment centers and kind of, um, I guess, what did you learn from those experiences? Um, yeah, I mean, I went straight into working at an outpatient. I kind of helped um, kind of build up this outpatient. It was a, some friends of mine owned it, and so I got to, like, be – part of um helping create the program in the beginning so we were kind of this like wild west of trying to grab what works and what fits and it it wanted to be a very non-traditional approach so um I thought it was really cool and I don't I I don't really know any other experience other than that except for 
the clients that would come in had been so kind of disillusioned with all of the other programs that they'd been in where there's, you know, a hundred people all crammed into this one place. And it seems like the counselors aren't really in it at all. And, um, you know, you're just kind of given coping skills and what are your triggers and all of that. And then, you know, they, they just kind of cycle in and out. So we were really trying to do something different and it was exciting. And so we got to see what really, for me personally, I got to see what really fits and what people actually like trying to do and what actually works. So what was different about the program that you guys kind of created and focused on? One of the biggest things kind of was that there wasn't really a 12 step aspect. Um, it wasn't kind of like downplayed. It wasn't talked bad about, but that wasn't one of the main focuses. Um, and there was a huge spiritual component, but it was kind of this new agey, um, intentional living, you know, manifesting the life that you want type of thing, which mm -hmm. resonated with a lot of the clients. And it actually resonates with me. It's kind of my own spirituality, I guess I would say too. Um, that's really but, cool because I think a lot of people stay, um, stay away from 12 step because of the, they don't resonate with the higher power aspect or they feel like it's more of a cult like program. And I think 12 step is amazing for some people. It really, really works and they really are able to utilize that as a resource to stay sober. But I've had so many clients who are trying to find sobriety and they just don't resonate with the 12 step program and they become kind of outcasted within the community because of that. And so it's really important that there are other options out there for people to kind of utilize. And a big thing that I'm hearing is your program focused on kind of finding more of a purpose in life and um, building a life that was worth staying sober for. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of a parallels with my own recovery, but that was a big part. Um, of what our program was there was just a lot of different modalities that they were coming from and you know sound healing and meditations and different things and then you know one of the groups that we had there was just a photography group and it was like a mindfulness group and they would go out but a lot of these clients would find that they had a real passion for photography or doing art again you know so um i think the 12-step piece like you said, it really works for a lot of people. And it was something that worked for me in the beginning as well. Cause I didn't really know anything else. I, I went to a 12 step based place. They made you do your first three steps while you were there. Pretty much, you know, you had to have a sponsor before you left. Um, and that's what I knew. And I knew that I didn't want to go back to what I was doing. I, I pretty much almost lost my life. So I was scared. So I dove feet first into AA um, and I did all my steps and all that. And I think it was great, but there was just this piece of, I, I told myself that I would commit for a year. And then there was this piece around the year mark where I was just kind of like seeing that the things that were really working for me were like working on building better relationships and working through my social anxieties and other things that AA wasn't really, it's not really equipped to handle those type of things, you know? So, um, I think that was the program that I worked in did a, did really well with a lot of that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. The life skills component is so huge because a lot of the clients that I work with um, are young adults that are struggling with addiction issues. And there's just this huge component of, you know, not knowing what direction to take in their life, not knowing 
what they want to do, what their purpose is, and then lacking the self-esteem, emotional regulation, and social skills to manifest anything. Even if they're able to really identify what they want to do, there's that barrier that holds them back from doing it. Um, right. That's that. I mean, walking out into the unknown is super scary for anybody, you know? And then you take your main coping skill that you've used for so long, you get that removed from you. And now you're supposed to go out and, and move about the world feeling everything for the first time. And so I think a lot of people take those, they get clean, they feel really good for a while, they're, they're gung-ho about it. And then they take those first few steps out of treatment into the real world. And all of a sudden it's just this major like contraction and they kind of run back to what they know and what has helped for so long. But unfortunately, you know, that's the thing that's also killing them at the same time, I guess. Exactly. And that can be really overwhelming because treatment kind of provides a structure and organization and gives you a set routine and schedule. And it's the second you're out of that and you're forced to create that for yourself, for someone that doesn't have coping skills and has used an external thing to regulate their emotions, that's going to be extremely flooding. And it kind of, one thing that I really struggled with working in the industry and um, has kind of disheartened me a little bit is just seeing how a lot of times programs kind of set people up to relapse um, because it is a big business. And also I think there is such a lack of focus on the life skills aspect and um, helping really build a strong foundation once you leave treatment. The aftercare program is often like, really missing in a lot of treatment centers yeah i mean that's kind of what i think to meet state requirements and to get jco accredited and all those things you know you have to have certain components as a part of your program and unfortunately everybody can kind of plug those little components in and then it just becomes this kind of routine day in day out where there's not a lot of investment behind what they're doing or there's not a lot of real connection to the clients or you have the the places that are just kind of I mean, packing as many people as they can in to, to run as many different, you know, insurance plans as they can. But, and it's not to say that the therapists or the people that work in those programs are actually at fault because they're trying to probably do their best too, but it just becomes this kind of money-making machine and it, it's a hard place. I watched the place that I worked at, you know, they were so gung-ho in the beginning and really wanted to do something different. And the more that the state came in and the more that different requirements came down, it's like the program got whittled away from what it was originally. And it just became this kind of run of the mill thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's really cool though, that, you know, you saw that by incorporating different things like photography, finding a different type of passion that that helped you stay sober. Um, right. Can you talk a little bit about, how you work with clients and kind of helping find what that is for them, like their purpose, their passion, something to replace that need to numb themselves. Yeah. I mean that again, there's a big parallel in my life and I, I spoke about photography, but that was something that when I first got sober, I found um, for myself specifically photography and it was kind of my own therapy and then it became a business and, um, but it was like finding this thing that gave me a reason to wake up every day and be excited. That was something that became really important. And so, you know, obviously every client that you work with, you can't, you know, help them like, I'm going to help you discover your passion. But 
one of my big things is helping kind of the outside things around it. So like I talked about before, a lot of people, I, I sit with a lot of different people and the biggest things that always come up are they feel purposeless and lost and they don't know what to do or where to go in life. And they haven't really been given the coping skills to kind of keep moving forward until they find those things. And then the other thing is um, a lot of people, whether it's family or intimate relationships or whatever, they can't really get a grasp on why they keep having so much distress within their relationships. And so I work from an attachment base and kind of help people figure out their attachment styles and what's going on so that, um, you know, they can at least navigate that a little bit more. So basically what I'm saying is like, I, I kind of come from a backdoor approach with addiction and it's not always just a focus on addiction because there's always that defensiveness too. like, Hey, I'm, I'm telling you, you can't use this substance anymore and you can't do this. And people tend to go watch me. I'll show you. I can. Mm -hmm. So, um, when you, when I, I feel personally, when, when I help people create a life that they start to feel more comfortable in all aspects, then they start to see that they don't necessarily have to turn towards that substance anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love that you go back into that attachment modality and really focus on how your family of origin, how you exist in this world is impacting your need to like cope in this way. Because a big thing that I see with a lot of the clients that I work with um, is there is childhood trauma of some sort, not only child abuse or sexual abuse, but also relational trauma, a lot of divorced families, a lot of um, parents that were absent because there was financial stress or a divorce that was really bad. Um, and people don't realize the impact that that has on them. And when you go back as a therapist and really touch on that, you're able to kind of help them make sense of their story and view their addiction as something that it, they're using to deal with what's happened to them rather than a part of who they are. And I think that's something that a lot of clients struggle with with the 12-step philosophy is identifying like, I'm an addict. This is inherently who I am. Whereas that approach kind of takes that out of you. Like you are a person and you have an addiction. Right. It's like given the circumstances or, you know, what they say about trauma, right? It's a normal reaction to abnormal events, you know, like given the circumstances of what's occurred, you've found a coping skill that works really well. Now we have to kind of figure out other uh, methods of kind of handling the discomfort in your life, but it makes complete sense where, you know, 12 step tries to do a good job of not shaming and not pathologizing, but at the same time you get this kind of fear-based mentality where it's like do it this way or else kind of thing um so yeah i mean I, I really think that that kind of painting a picture and normalizing it normalizing the use and then working to go okay now let's create a space where you can kind of free yourself from that mm -hmm. definitely and just helping understand how those experiences have really shaped people into questioning themselves and how that shows up in self-sabotage and not being able to keep a job or pursue certain hobbies or having some sort of social anxiety. Cause you, you mentioned that a few, a few times um, previously, the social anxiety aspect, cause that is such a huge factor that I see with a lot of the clients that I work with is there's continued relapse because they can't put themselves out there in the world. And that does stem back to the attachment 
that we just talked about of not feeling safe, not feeling that relationships are safe. And by really giving them the tools to find a hobby or, you know, connect with people that they resonate with, you're teaching them how to re-relate. It's like a corrective emotional experience that they get to find in that group or like um, connected place. That's kind of, so like, not knocking on 12 step at all because AA I will credit as being a huge um, player in, you know, getting me to where I'm at today. And one of the things was that I had tons of crippling social anxiety mm-hmm. and it was for the first time that like I had to go be around this group of people all the time and I was crawling out of my skin all of the time and you have to hold hands and say the prayer and all these things and my palms are always sweaty and you know so I was like but it it became almost like an exposure type of therapy where I I got to learn at least in that aspect that okay you know if I sit here a little bit longer today if I don't run out of the meeting first thing right when it ends I'm starting to build up a little bit of distress tolerance around some of these things But unfortunately, it doesn't, like I was in school learning about CBT and all of these things at the time. So I was almost kind of being being my own therapist for myself. And if you go strictly to AA, they're not really explaining how these things are working in your life at the same time, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think whether or not you participate in a 12-step program, it's super important to get some sort of outside therapy as well. Mm -hmm. Because you can learn to feel safe in in the rooms and resonate with the people that are in your meetings, but that doesn't mean that that's necessarily going to transcend into going to a job interview or going out on a date sober. Exactly. Yeah. That was excruciating for me the the very first time. Like I made myself go on match.com and have to go face some of those things, you know, the first time and tell somebody I'm sober and I don't drink and have them ask why. But all of those things, I mean, I think it's having somebody like a therapist or a sponsor or somebody, but somebody that can be by your side while you do go out and sort of start expanding your comfort zone, because essentially that's what it is. Like you can get sober and be sober and not use, but have you just kind of relegated yourself now to this tiny little world or are you learning how to create an amazing life now that you've taken away like the one thing that was really destroying your life, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the insight of seeing that there's a life outside of your um, drug use is really huge for a lot of people because I always, I always do a group um, at the treatment center that I work at where I have clients write a letter to their addiction or to their drug of choice. And it's like a really important relationship to a lot of people when they read the letters, it's like a very painful breakup that they have to have in order to grieving process huge grieving process because when you think about it going back to that attachment um if that's broken in early childhood a child doesn't have the ability to emotionally regulate and self-soothe so as a teenager or somebody that's exposed to a substance that gives them the comfort that they've always craved that becomes like almost like a parental figure like a boyfriend a girlfriend um, super significant relationship with that sub t- substance, and when you take it away, it's almost like a death of a of a significant person in in your life. Yeah, it's like the one thing that you know you feel judged and you feel looked down upon and all this in the world, and 
it's that one thing that kind of always is validating and providing comfort, which is weird to say. People don't, it's hard to explain these types of things unless you've worked an addiction or you've had an addiction, you know, that you've struggled through. But a lot of people don't, um, it's hard to kind of explain to the layman some of these things that we're talking about, you know? Well, so many people talk about it in a way that's so, um, I guess, judgmental because they look at it as like, why can't you just stop drinking? Like, it's just a beer or how can you use heroin and like hurt all these people that care about you and continue to act out these crazy behaviors for the heroin? Like, it's just a substance. I don't get it. But to that person, it's not just a substance. It's their world. And when the clients read these letters, like it really is eye-opening to see like the relationship that they have with their addiction or with that substance of choice because it's been the thing that's comforted them. It's been the thing that's taken away the pain and people haven't been able to do that a lot of the time for them. There's a lot of disrupted attachments, a lot of broken relationships in their past that get replaced with an object such as, you know, drugs and alcohol. Right. Yeah. That is something that you said, like, it's this thing that comes in and takes away your pain. You know, it's something that I try to explain to families when I work with them too. Cause a lot of times, depending on what stage somebody is in their addiction, when, when people get to the real bottom of bottoms, people can start to tell that this is not a pleasurable thing anymore, but mm-hmm. there is a space in earlier addiction where families think that they're just out partying still or that they're just having a good time and that they don't care. And it's, you know, there's that old saying that um, the first step is admitting that you have a problem. And it's like pretty much every person that's been deep in addiction knows that they have a problem and they're terrified and they don't really know how to get away from the problem, you know? Mm -hmm. But the thing that I'm kind of talking in circles, but the thing that I try to explain to families is that um, it's not that they're like using this substance to try and feel good all the time. It's really more that they're using the substance to try and not feel bad all the time. If that, that kind of reframe really helps a lot of parents and stuff, because it's kind of like, if you knew that your family member or your loved one was in pain all the time or hurting or just so lonely, you would want to help or you would want to at least take a non-judgmental stance towards it. But when you think that they're just kind of out there blowing everything off and just partying and having a grand old time, it's kind of easy to get really mad at them, you know? Mm-hmm, definitely. And as you were saying this, for some reason, I just like thought of all my male clients. Um, because that's what I see a lot in the treatment center is the girls actually tend to have higher rates of being successful or staying sober for a longer period of time um, it, in the work that I've done. And there's this dynamic with the guys where I think they weren't allowed to express their feelings. And so there's a lot of like, acting out behaviors, kind of joking about sobriety, like being afraid to take it seriously or admit that they're struggling. And I just thought about what you were saying with the families of how often um, they don't notice that somebody is in pain because maybe there's not the space to talk about it, especially for guys. And I wanted to ask you, because you're a male therapist and you're a little younger, what's been your experience working you know, with that particular population? That was a big thing that we kind of did at the treatment center that I was at. And I learned from a bunch of the different older male. um, One of the counselors that I worked with had worked in Folsom prison for like 30 years and done a bunch of work with men. And a lot of it is like, as men, we're kind of conditioned 
through, I mean, direct verbal conditioning and then through society, through the discourses and kind of socially constructed ideas to like not show any vulnerability and not show any weakness and rub some dirt on it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So it's kind of, you get into this process where now you have to start feeling your feelings again and you need to feel them in order to walk through them, but you've never really felt a feeling before in your life, you know? So it's kind of like, I would imagine too, like when you're in a room full of a bunch of other men in a treatment setting and everyone's kind of putting on this bravado and trying to act tough and macho when really like you need to drop in and start getting vulnerable and not being, you know, I don't want to be um, putting gender roles on anybody, but women are usually more conditioned to be more nurturing and um, you know, men, we just don't, we don't know how to do that. And it's one of the key things to moving through this thing. Yeah, definitely. And I guess when you were talking about the families, like not knowing that this isn't just them having fun and doing crazy stuff, this is actually them being in a lot of emotional pain and coping with it in a way that seems that it is fun, but it's actually extremely painful and just self-destructive. Right. Yeah. Parents often don't see that, especially with boys because boys don't allow themselves to express their pain often. Right. Yeah, I I agree. I kind of went on a roundabout way, but (laughs) I wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying. And and yeah, I don't think we want to look at our boys as, you know, that they could be hurting deeply inside, you know, it's just kind of like brushed over and pick yourself up you know, brush it off and get on with life. Yeah, really man. a lot of emotional processing that needs to happen. So what was that process like for you, I guess, being able to really accept your vulnerability as a man and in your sobriety? Because it sounds like for you, you were, did you go to treatment one time and you were able to stay sober after that? Or did you have like relapses and stuff like that before you were able to maintain long-term sobriety? It was a one-time shot for me. I got sober in 2010 and have just kind of been moving forward ever since. But that, that was a big part of the process was, I think I've always been a sensitive kid. Um, I was more into like the arts and I was in plays as a kid and all these things. And my dad was a baseball player, got drafted straight out of high school to play for a big major league team. And he never went on to the pros, but he was more like sports and, you know, let's go do that. And I kind of, I felt different for not being into all of that stuff. And mm-hmm. so I put on a mask, I think, for a long time of, I think all guys kind of do this. And it's been my experience with a lot of the guys that I work with in treatment centers where they're like these more sensitive, empathic, just like feeling the whole world type of souls, you know? Mm-hmm. And, but, but we have to put on these masks to be these tough macho guys. And you don't really know how to, just like accept your authentic self. Um, so that was that a big process for me. And that's another thing that I kind of work with the men that I work with is just kind of coming back full circle to like, who are you? Who's your authentic self? And that it's okay to be that person in this world, you know, even though despite what you might be hearing or despite what the other guys are doing or the bros that are out there, you know, like you, you can be who you are. You can play guitar and sing songs and be artistic you know that's totally okay it doesn't make you any less of a man right yeah I just watched a documentary a few days ago called the mask you live in on Netflix and it talks a lot about men and 
how we socialize our men to disown their feelings and put on that mask and not be their authentic self and the rates of addiction and suicide and um, you know a lot of homicides are so often committed by men because there's so much suppression um, that our culture kind of pushes on men for that reason and I guess that's like another aspect that I think is so important that sometimes is lost in the 12 step Um, I've had a lot of clients come in and be like my sponsor just told me to shut the fuck up about how I'm feeling and just like do the steps and like to me that's really dangerous because it just reinforces like that those things don't matter and that you just need to conform to this one way of thinking and doing things Um, and for the people that don't resonate with that philosophy that can be really damaging totally I mean that's somebody said to me when I first got into um, AA and I'm not trying to be judgmental or anything but they said it's not well people's anonymous so you have and what they were meaning is you know you have a bunch of people who have been struggling for a really long time and they all come together for this one common thing but you get a lot of people so there's a lot of sponsors that have done could have done a ton of personal work and gone to therapy and done all these things and they know how to you know meet you where you're at and be really empathic and understanding and all of that and then you have people who kind of get some power out of this role that they're in now you know and so and and probably to their best intentions but they're the way that it was done to them is the way they're going to do it to you and so shut the fuck up and do it you know but it's not always the best uh, approach yeah and that approach might work great for somebody that needs more of a like tough love or like structured person in their life to encourage them but it might not be the right thing for everybody like the more sensitive person that wants to create room for their emotions or wants to start getting more into music or poetry or a part of their life that they've kind of had to suppress or disown right so like you have these for me i was a very anxious very scared person everything was very fear-based you know and thankfully I had a really good sponsor who understood me and he, I think was kind of in the same place, but like mm-hmm. there's a lot of the people in those rooms that um, it, it's like if I've, it's almost recreating family of origin stuff in that space. You know what I mean? Where like you have this person that's coming down on you all the time and telling you, why didn't you call me today? And why didn't you do this? And you didn't do it the way I told you to. And it's enough to make anybody run away and not want to come be a part of that anymore. You know, that's mm-hmm. kind of, that was like the, the core of the problem. And now it's being recreated in this space. That's also supposed to be helping you. Yeah, definitely. So I guess my next question for you is kind of like, what are some tools that you've used or that have worked for you and helping you find purpose or helping some of your clients find purpose? I know you said the photography and stuff like that, but, how do you get people out of their comfort zone and to face their social anxiety to actually try those different outlets? I think that the main thing that worked for me and that I try to help people with, like first and foremost is self-regulation. So mindfulness and different techniques mm-hmm. that are going to help you first kind of be aware of the feelings and the anxieties that are happening and then give you a little bit more control so you can feel capable of kind of moving through the situations. Um, and then, I mean, it sounds really simplistic, but 
like the biggest thing is just learning to keep putting one foot in front of the other. All of these things aren't going to come back immediately, you know, and people get a couple, you know, a couple months sober and they think, why hasn't it all happened for me yet? Why haven't I found my purpose? Why don't I have a hundred thousand dollar a year job? Why isn't it all coming back? And it's like, you have to continue to find a way to keep moving forward. I think that the higher power piece of AA essentially to me, I'm not really a religious person and I was an atheist when I went into AA, but what I found out of it was faith. And, and so it's basically faith is just like a, an unwavering belief in the unknown, you know? And Mm -hmm. so I have a faith that if I keep moving forward, things are going to continue to get better, you know? And I've seen that over and over that it's, that's the hardest part with people in early sobriety is it's, it's a lot of just, self-regulation and then continuing to like believe that things are going to change if you keep making these positive, taking these positive steps in your life. Yeah, definitely. And I think that a lot of addicts are so used to that instant gratification from, you know, taking a hit, getting high, having a drink, not having to feel that they're expecting everything to just fall into place right away and teaching that mindfulness and distress tolerance and emotional regulation really helps rewire the brain to not needing that instant gratification and giving it time to unfold um and learning to be patient with that right and that's kind of another thing so like another tool that i use i was trained when i went to grad school in narrative therapy and one of the big things is um deconstructing discourse so like basically looking at all these socially constructed ideas that aren't really real, you know, like what it means to be a man and what success looks like and what time you're supposed to have been married and finished school and all these different things. And then I help people break down a lot of these things so that they can learn to feel comfortable where they're at in the present and continue to move forward. Because I work with a lot of people who, you know, I'm in my later 30s. I was 30 when I got sober um, and I felt really behind and that constant anxiety of you're kind of behind the gun and comparing myself to everyone else around me was enough to, I've seen it for a lot of people. It's enough to make them just run back to the thing that they know and the thing that makes them comfortable. Mm -hmm. So go ahead. Oh no, I was just saying, yeah, that's totally the cycle is a lot of my clients, even the younger ones, I have a client who's 19 now, but still feels so behind because they, their addiction has impaired them from being in school or getting the job and, it feels overwhelming and hopeless, I think, for a lot of people to, right. and that they have to play so much catch up. And a big thing that I do with clients is I kind of reframe that and say, like, you know, it will happen for you, but maybe it's not supposed to happen right now. Like maybe the universe is giving you an opportunity to learn a lesson that the people who are doing those things don't get to learn right now and will have to learn later in life through some t- sort of difficult trial. Right. Like that's the hardest thing to convey to somebody who's in the thick of it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But almost everybody that I've worked with, including myself, can look back at some of these major distressing events in their life and be like, if that hadn't have happened, I wouldn't be here doing what I'm doing today or I wouldn't have learned this valuable lesson. So, I mean, even saying that, I try to work with a lot of people just to stay in the present and just kind of stop that future tripping about where they're going and what are they doing and it's like whatever is happening in this moment right now is teaching you something that's preparing you for whatever's next 
Mm -hmm. And that's such a different way of looking at an addiction, right? Because there's so much shame and guilt and stigma around it that looking at it as like, maybe you were meant to go through this so that you learn something from it to build a better future or to help someone else. Or, you know, like, I, I also feel like I'm not a religious person, but a spiritual person. And I really, um, I've really embodied that in the work that I do with clients now is really looking at those events that kind of alter your life and are viewed as negative as opportunities to really grow and reframing them as something that probably had to happen for you to have a different type of future that's better fit for who you are than the path that you wanted to go down, you know? Yeah. And, and it's so, it's such an experiential thing because you can't really, you can talk about it and cognitively you can tell somebody what you just told me, but it's really hard for people to see. And so if you can kind of put that, information out there for them and at the same time help them continue to move forward so that they can get to the point where they actually do see that and they go oh my god I, I really did learn something from this you know yeah definitely definitely and I think so many people lose sight of how much an addict has gone through and for me what I've seen a lot of the clients that I work with they're so sensitive they're so intelligent artistic creative a lot of them have really really good people skills, even though they have a lot of social anxiety, often they're pretty attuned to people, you know, their intuition is usually pretty strong, which is why often addicts can be master manipulators is because they have the ability to really tap into their intuition about people and know who they can and can't manipulate. But all those things are strengths, in my opinion, Oh yeah, that they can use to like get great jobs or start their own business. And a lot of them don't see how intelligent and creative and attuned they actually are. And I think pointing those things out to them and saying like, hey, like, you know, you've used these things to do bad things or like in your addiction, you've done some things that you're ashamed of, but that doesn't mean that that's who you are. But look at what you were able to do and maybe you can use those same skills to do something positive. Yeah, I mean, some of, pretty much every single person that I've worked with has some sort of gift or, is I'm like constantly blown away by every addict that I've worked with is like one of the most intelligent people that I've ever sat down and had a conversation with. And I think that plays in a lot to the struggle because I mean, I, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of different people where it's kind of like they see, they get disillusioned by what they see in the world or this thing where you're supposed to go work, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week for, you know, a minimal paycheck and you just pay bills and kind of get up every day and go do that. And that, that's what life is kind of this existential crisis almost, you know? Yep. And, and that's, I think what's another important thing for me about helping people find passions or hobbies or things at least is that they can kind of start to see that it's not, you're not just this passive victim to this world or this uh, system that we live in. You can actually push back and manipulate it and create some, joy within this thing yeah we do have to pay bills and we have to do it but if you work really hard you can make money doing the thing that you love you know mm -hmm. and that's so interesting because what i think about a lot of addicts is that they're the ones that feel a little bit different in this world and i believe that the people that feel different are the people that have the ability to change the world the most and they're the most important ones um and they've used drugs and alcohol to like fit in or to find an identity or to kind of numb or minimize that difference that they feel within themselves in this right. world. 
And honestly, a lot of them have so many talents and things that can really contribute to other people and to, you know, just the world in general. Um, but yeah, I think like that, how helping them tap into that and utilize that in creating the sober life and stop minimizing their own power and strength and creativity is so important. Right. I mean, that's what you said right there, hit the nail on the head as far as like that they feel different and that points to a bigger thing as far as like, there's, there's kind of this, um, robotic we're all supposed to fall in line and we all police each other and we see what we're supposed to look like and act like through tv and media and all these other things and then if somebody's different or steps out of line they're kind of pointed at and judged and shamed but that person and so that person never grows to see that like they're the ones they're like the gifted one they're the one that can create all the change and has all the power and they're beautiful but they feel less than for their differences instead of celebrated you know mm -hmm. yeah yeah and that's such a big way of reframing it i think for people and helping them know like you don't have to be like everyone else you don't have right. to ascribe to a certain role like you find what works for you and you shine into that yep mm -hmm. yeah i i think that's a huge piece of work that needs to be done with people you know is like there's 7 billion people on this planet, you know, we're not all supposed to be the same. Like if we were all exactly the same, it would be a really boring place. And we can't all do everything on the exact same timeline, you know, like everybody's still trying to do it, but it's like how, if we all did everything at the same time and we're all the same person, it would just be this weird robotic world. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's so true. Our differences make us beautiful. Mm -hmm. Jay, thank you so much for sharing this and kind of talking about this different perspective to working with addiction. And I just think it's such a balanced view that you have because you're, you see both sides, you're open to the 12 step world and how that can really work for a lot of people, but also see the beauty and value in seeking help and maybe finding other outlets if that doesn't work for you. Yeah. Like I just don't want anybody to be kind of turned off and think that if they don't do it that one way, then they're never going to be able to get sober or get help. Like there's so many avenues and there's tons of different groups that people can go to, whether it's like refuge, which is Buddhist based or there's smart, which is just more kind of CBT. I mean, there's, there's so many different avenues to go through. And if one way doesn't work, keep trying, you know? Yeah. And that's the biggest thing is like helping encourage people to keep trying, keep that wheel rolling. Cause it can feel really discouraging when you go out there and you have three months sober and you relapse and you're just stuck in this cycle. And it feels like, wow, like it doesn't work for me. There's something inherently wrong with me. No, it's that maybe you're not finding the right thing for you and you need right. to keep exploring and trying new things because you don't know which one's going to stick and fit for you. Exactly. Like it's just, it's keeping moving forward and keep trying new things. But if you go back the other way, it's just kind of this hamster wheel of just like groundhog day type thing where everything just ends up being the same, you know? So like as scary as it is moving forward into the unknown, it's just as miserable and uncomfortable going back the other way. Cause you keep just doing the same thing over and over, you know? Mm -hmm. Yep. And it gets harder the longer that you do that. Right. Yeah. All right. So I was asked my guests to share three takeaway points from our discussion, three things that you feel like are important for listeners to take away from either our discussion or from your specialty or your own experience or anything you'd like to share. 
Um, okay, so I would say with it, when it comes to addiction, there is no one size fits all. There is no right way to do it. There is just, it's your life to create. And so you need to go about doing it however works for you so that you at least just be able to find some joy in life, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's not all going to come immediately and not everybody is doing this thing at the same time and the same pace. So really just holding on and keep moving forward and kind of that gives a lot of space to work, have some reflection and have some insight too about, you know, why do I think I have to be doing it at this space or that time? Um, so just kind of continuing to move forward and, and venture out into that unknown and push your comfort zones out. Um, and then the last thing, oh man, I would just say have faith, I guess, you know, if that for people who are gung ho on the higher power thing and all of that, just make the higher, your higher power faith. Like I, I wholeheartedly believe that we are um, kind of creating our own reality. You know, you can choose to focus on the negative, or you can choose to focus on the positive. But if I get up every day and believe that today is going to be a good day and tomorrow is going to be better than today type of thing, I, I you can kind of create that in your life, you know. But it's when you start to sort of lose hope that you go back the other way. So I would say just keep the faith and keep moving forward. Awesome. And can you tell us a little bit about how clients can reach you if they're interested in working with you or if any clinicians have questions about the work that you do or want to collaborate with you? Yeah, my website is um, comingintofocus.org. Um, that's probably the best way to reach me. I have an Instagram, a Facebook. I'm kind of trying to be out there on all those different things. My Instagram's coming into focus. Um, but I would say the best way is probably just directly through the website. Okay, great. And I will link that information below in the podcast notes for those of you who are interested in reaching out to Jay to work with him or if you have any questions for him. Um, Jay, thank you so much for joining me today. And I loved our discussion. Um, I hope that your practice builds and you're successful because I, I think there's so many people that need a model like you and to find support outside of just 12 step or just one way. I think you're really innovating the path, I guess. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I really appreciate the opportunity to come on here. And um, it was nice just to have a discussion that sounds like we're both kind of on the same page about this field. So I uh, really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, no problem. And thank you listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Guiding Compass podcast. I appreciate your support. Please subscribe, like, share the episodes. Really want to build awareness around these different topics and start having more people talking about mental health and listening to information and stop the stigma. Um, thank you for listening. And as I always say, remember to follow your compass. Have a good one, guys. Bye.